You know, Memorial Day is obviously a day that we can remember the sacrifice of those who protect our country and just something about that, just very special, right? Hopefully um, you guys had a good somber time and also restful. And in a strange alignment of cultural forces, though, like June is both apparently National Men's Health Month and LGBTQ Pride Month. If you didn't hear about it, you'll probably be bombarded with it everywhere you go. But he says, America, God shed his grace in thee, right? As for me, how do I celebrate the fact that, you know, it's National Men's Health Month? I'll try to shed some weight, get healthier, and celebrate that I'm a man. Maybe that's the best way to just counter the cultural forces that are at hand here. You know, some have tried to help me live up to my male identity, you know. How can men encourage each other, right? Not just among Christians, but all the men that we meet, to be a man. One mentor read me this piece from a former president, and some of you may recognize it. Quote, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst... If he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. End quote. Pretty inspiring stuff. And even though the speech came from a fallible man, there's some truth in it. Even more reliable, however, is the Bible. That's an understatement there. In, in its pages are both the flawless ideal man, Jesus Christ, and those predestined to, com- to be conformed to his image, even if they're flawed at the moment. And one of those, as you guess, is David. He's certainly a sinner. But he's also that man in the arena, right? By faith, he became valiant in battle and turned to flight the armies of the aliens. See that in Hebrews 11. He's definitely one of those men who live by faith. So let's see what he's up to in 2 Samuel 5 as we turn to that passage. Continue in 2 Samuel. If you're following along in your pew Bible, you'll find it in page 214. 2 Samuel 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. 
and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now David said on that day, whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the millow and inward. So David went on and became great, and the Lord, Lord God of hosts was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. So David knew that the Lord had established them as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also more sons and daughters were born to David. Now these are the names of those who are born to him in Jerusalem, Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibar, Elishua, Nephek, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, Eliphelet. Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. And David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. The Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David went to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore he called the name of that place Baal-perazim. And they left their images there, and David and his men carried them away. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, and he said, You shall not go up. Circle around behind them and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. For then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so as the Lord commanded him. And he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. So in terms of structure, we see David at three different mountainous locations in this chapter. He's anointed at Hebron in verses 1 to 5. He ascends to Jerusalem in verses 6 to 16. He descends to a stronghold near the valley of Rephaim in verses 17 to 25. The location shifts help us trace and outline, but as for the contents, there's in each of these three sections a proper recognition of God. In verses 2 and 3, the tribes of Israel remember what the Lord said to David in the past and make a covenant with him before the Lord. Skip down to verses 10 and 12. You'll see there how the Lord was with David and established David. And then in verses 19, 20, 23 to 25, you see multiple times that David inquired of the Lord. 
and the Lord spoke to David. The king obeys God and gives credit to him for the victory. Now, again, David's not a perfect man. In fact, there's no hiding his imperfections, especially since the narrator speaks of his weakness for women smack in the middle of the chapter, 2 Samuel 5 there, just after and just before his great military accomplishments. But still, we can relate with David and learn how he relates to God. So here are the three lessons from the start of David's reign as king over all Israel. I call them three spiritual priorities of a godly leader. The three spiritual priorities of a godly leader. First, wait for God's word and his people. Wait for God's word and his people. That's verses 1 to 5. Secondly, recognize God's presence and his assurance. Recognize God's presence and his assurance. That's verses 6 to 16. Thirdly, seek God's direction and his power. Seek God's direction and his power. That's verses 17 to 25. The first spiritual priority of a godly leader is to wait for God's word and his people. This is David's crowning moment. The elders who represent the tribes covenanted with David and anoints him as their king. 2 Samuel 5, 1-5 feels somewhat like a somber event, but 1 Chronicles 12, 23-40 adds some energy and color to this scene in Hebron. Thousands of military men gathered with a loyal heart. There's unity and joy in the great feast that followed. Finally, David's king over all Israel and Judah. The only regret in all this is that it didn't take place sooner. David's anointing should have happened years ago. For example, just imagine if these verses came right after chapter 2, verse 7, when David first arrived in Hebron. But instead, what happened? Verses 8 and 9, Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made them king. Yeah, those loyal to Saul were rebellious and stubborn. But there's blame on David's side, too. 2 Samuel 5, 1 to 5 should have been right after chapter 3, verse 21. Recall that Abner changed his mind about David and his kingship, and David welcomed them into Hebron. Abner's parting words were, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. But before that could take place, two of David's men went rogue, Joab and Abishai, killed Abner because he had killed their brother Asahel at the Battle of Gibeon. So that caused further delay. Finally, 2 Samuel 5, 1-5 comes after the horrific assassination of chapter 4. It was yet another wicked act by wicked men. Rechab and Ba'ana, the captains of troops, snuck into Ishbosheth's home and killed him on his own bed in broad daylight. 
They took his head to show it to David for reward. In response, David took their hands and feet to display them as wages of their sin. Because David wasn't immediately accepted, there was much pain and loss. About 400 fallen in battle, 24 in a competition, four hands and four feet cut off, three staffs to the stomach, two prominent figures in the tomb. All that could have been avoided if David was made king over all Israel sooner. But now here we are, and it would do good, do us, all of us good, to focus on the words of the Israelite tribes found in quotation marks in verses 1 to 2 there. And we'll go through the statement in three parts. Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. In the case, the common ancestry shared between David and his people. They're all descendants of Jacob. The first half of verse 2 speaks of David's achievements under Saul's reign as leader over the men of war and eventually his captain over a thousand. First saw this in 1 Samuel 18. Finally, the second half of verse 2 is the most important reason for David's rule. God said he would rule. Simple as that. At first, only Samuel knew of this prophecy, but then it was known to David's family, his tribe, and even his enemies all eventually, eventually realized this as truth. David, of course, knew this day would come. He waited for God's word. Those promises got him through tough times. But it took God's people much longer to get on the same page as David. David and his closest followers. So David waited patiently. And that's what I think being a good leader or shepherd is all about. A godly leader not only waits for God's word, but also waits for his people. This is seen in many of our lives. A loving mother patiently reaches into a child's heart over time instead of looking for quick, unbiblical solutions. A pastor takes years to be examples to the flock instead of being lords over those entrusted to him. Now, I'm not denying the need for authority and discipline. That's also in the Bible. It's just that we're up against human personalities and hearts, and such obstacles require loving and careful perseverance. So that's the first priority. Wait for God's word and his people. Because the Israelites came around to the idea of David as king, David the king will come around to them, literally. He moves his residence about 90 miles up north from Hebron to Jerusalem. That way, the king of the tribe of Judah's closer to other tribes. Now that he's the king of all Israel. That leads to the next part of 2 Samuel 5. And the second priority of godly leadership, recognize God's presence and his assurance. We'll need some background on the Jebusites who stand in David's way. They belong to the Canaanite lineage, according to Genesis 10, and territory as mountain dwellers. You see that in Numbers and Joshua. 
At one point, they, along with others, were greater and mightier than Israel. But morally speaking, they committed many abominations for their gods and sinned against the Lord. God gave the tribe of Judah the authority to punish them and drive them out. But they could not do so for a while. Not until David took up the challenge. Jerusalem was a prized city of the Jebusites and appropriately and understandably once named Jebus. That's how important it was to them. It stood about 2,500 feet above sea level. And that height looks even higher than it is because nearby are the two of the lowest places on earth. The Dead Sea is about 1,400 feet below sea level and the Sea of Galilee, 700 feet. And to be practical, the mountainous surrounding of Jerusalem gave it physical and strategic advantages against invaders. So it was literally an uphill battle to take that city from the Jebusites. David's enemies were so confident in their fortifications, natural and artificial, that they started trash-talking. They're saying that they could station disabled citizens on the walls to throw some rocks aimlessly, and they'll still win the battle. David took that personally. Now, just as you do with any complex problem, David broke down the Jerusalem problem into two steps. First, he approached the Jebusite city from the south and took the stronghold that stood on Mount Zion. Secondly, from there, David and his men worked to break through the enemy defenses just north of them. David was a master tactician. He threw reconnaissance, looked for any weakness in their dwelling. There was an opening. It was a small, but it was there by way of the water shaft. We learn in 1 Chronicles 11.6 that Joab, the son of Zeruiah, led the charge in this. It's one of his better moments. He defeated the Jebusites and took the title of chief captain as reward. David's enemies were mockingly called the blind and the lame as they found themselves repelled and expelled out of the city. So the city of David was established and it was expanding Rapidly, Milo in the verse, uh, verse 9 there literally means filling, which could refer to the filling of gaps between the hills to level the city, or it could be some embankment to protect it against others. Foreigners were also eager to help David in his design of Jerusalem. Hiram, the king of the coastal Phoenician city Tyre, sent material and builders for David's palace. The Lebanese cedar tree was valuable from the ancient times. It could be shaped and manipulated easily, yet it does not shrink or distort over long periods of time. In these victories and prosperities, David and others could recognize God's presence and his assurance. So let's focus on verse 10 and 12. David's rise was possible because the Lord God of hosts was with him. And who is this Lord God of hosts? The Lord in all caps refers to Yahweh, 
Yahweh not only establishes the covenant with his people, but he also remembers those promises to give them the land he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God of hosts refers to his power. Host comes from that word Sabaoth. We saw that word earlier during worship, if you recall. And at the mighty fortress is our God. And the, but the better word for our modern audience is armies. On David's side is the Lord God armies, God of the armies of Israel, and also the armies of angels. This is the God who is with the king. He makes promises and he backs them up. David recognized the Lord's presence in his life. And over time, others caught on. And such recognition of God's presence also serves as assurance with us as well. When we take big steps of faith, follow the Lord's will in a new chapter of our lives, like David, we want to know that he's established us. Not just for our sake, but also for the sake of those under our authority. Make it a priority to recognize God's presence and assurance in our leadership. Now, it'd be great if we can skip over verses 13 to 16, but it's there, clear as day. David's sinful ways with women. The Bible's clear that having one wife and many sons and daughters with her, as the Lord allows, is a wonderful blessing. But David wasn't satisfied with God's will for his sexual relationships. He imposed his sinful will. He racked up trophy wives and spread a seed according to the ways of the worldly kings. Again, this is surprising as the law of Moses clearly condemns kings who multiply wives in Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20. This is David's glaring weakness and blind spot. This decision will haunt him in the future. We'll talk more about this later as we continue in 2 Samuel, but for now we again turn to his strengths in the last part of 2 Samuel 5. We learn that godly leaders make it a priority to request God's direction and power. The Jebusites, as pesky as they were, could not match the military prowess of the Philistines. They were the most formidable foes of Israel in the books of Samuel. Eugene Merrill provides a helpful summary of their backgrounds. I'll give you a quote here. Quote, the Philistines, Israel's principal enemy during the period of the last of the judges, were a non-Semitic people whose origins were most likely in Crete or in some other part of the Aegean Sea area. They came to Canaan in two different migrations, one as early as Abraham's time, 200 B.C.-ish, and the other about 1200 B.C. They lived in five main towns in the southern Canaan coast, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ekron, Gath, and Ashdod. They were technologically advanced, pioneering in the use of iron and in other skills. With such 
power and knowledge that Philistines were superior to the Israelites in a worldly sense. They caused so many problems for Israel that Saul's main task as their king was to save them from their hand. But there was fierce war with the Philistine all of his days. That's because of his poor spiritual leadership. He failed to empower his son and his son-in-law, his two best weapons against the Philistines. It's no wonder that the Philistines ended Saul's reign at Mount Gilboa. Now it's up to David to save God's people, Israel, from their hand. Now, when the news of David's ascent arrived, there must have been some initial confusion on the enemy's side. So recall that for a year and four months, he pretended to serve the Philistine king Achish while stationed at Ziklag. And then for more than seven years, David was mostly struggling with Saul's house. So it's likely that the Philistine lords thought David was acting as their loyal vessel, as misguided as that idea was. But well, now that David's asserting himself as king over all Israel, they realize that they must quickly subdue them. So they're probably enraged at having been duped, played. The Philistines searched for David and deployed themselves in the Valley of Rephaim. It's a fertile area only three or four miles southwest of Jerusalem. David knew of their movements and reacted accordingly, descending to a stronghold. Uh, this stronghold mentioned in verse 17 is not the same as the one in verse 9. One is set to go up to Jerusalem as destination rather than go down to it. But we can conclude safely that this stronghold is not too far from where the Philistines stationed themselves. So the stage is set for a confrontation. But before the clash, we see what sets David apart from other kings. You might be impressed with the leader's strategy, charisma, eloquence. You might be in awe of a ruler's experience, education, ranking. But let me tell you this truth. Godly leaders seek God's direction and power. Verse 19 gets me thinking about two figures for compare and contrast with David, one way after David and one just before David. I'll start with Peter in the New Testament. Like David, Peter was experienced in his craft, which was catching fish, right? And both learned to lean not on their own understanding. Both realized that the Lord's ways and thoughts are higher than ours. That's why when Jesus told Peter, the professional fisherman, to launch out into the deep and let down your net for a catch in Luke 5, 4, he replied in the next verse, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. Like Peter and fishing, David knows a thing or two about fighting. but he still prioritized God's direction. I think it's easier to trust God when you don't know anything. (laughs) When you're used to trusting your gut instincts or accumulated a ton of experience. 
Or it can be tough to do what Peter did and what David did. We must make it a godly habit, a discipline, to seek God's direction and his power. Shall I go up here or there? Will the Lord grant me success? Will he give me strength to persevere? Let's also compare David to the one who ruled just before him. No surprise, Saul once asked the Lord when facing these same enemies, a different location, but back in 1 Samuel 14.37, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. Like, why? Why did God answer David here in today's passage, but not Saul back then? Well, if you read 1 Samuel 13 and 14 in context, you'll see that Saul's first instinct wasn't to pray and seek God's will. He rushes in when he should wait. He hesitates when he should act. David, on the other hand, waits for the Lord's answer before his major moves. He's been doing this before he became king, and he'll continue to do so. Again, this is sort of, if only he'd asked for God's wisdom in his dealings with women, as he did with his enemies. At any rate, David does seek God's direction and power during war, and he receives them. The force with which David and his men fought was like a dam of water breaking. It was so bad of a defeat that the Philistines abandoned their idols they brought into the battle. He memorializes this overwhelming rout of the Philistines by calling the place Baal Perazim. Baal does not always refer to the infamous idol we see so prominently in the Old Testament. Baal simply means Lord, and it, as you see here, it can be used to describe the true God of Israel. Perazim comes from the word meaning break or breach. Certainly, God broke David's enemies. But the Philistines were a persistent bunch. They regrouped and occupied the valley again. And David keeps on fighting. He seeks God again. David has just witnessed divine power as it resembles the flood of mighty waters. Now he's about to see that power again as it resembles chariots riding on the winds. Now, when David inquired of the Lord again, it's not hard to imagine that what just happened is at the forefront of David's mind. Maybe he expected God to work in the same way or very similar way as he just did. Can't argue with the results. If it isn't broke, don't fix it, right? Except that at times the Lord works in ways that defies past experience, even good past experience. It's not that the word of God changes, of course not, but our application of it in our lives may look different as circumstances change, as we're led by the Spirit. That's why we must be praying constantly. So though David faces the same enemy at the same area, there's a different strategy. The Lord instructs him to take the roundabout instead of charging straight ahead. It's possible that the Philistines have fortified the frontal defenses, anticipating the same move as before, but now the army of Israel stood behind them. Next, God instructed David to wait for the sound of marching in the tops 
or the mulberry trees. Some commentators think that God sent strong winds to cause that sound. Others think he sent angelic warriors. Whatever the cause, the effect's the same. It's a sign for David to advance quickly, without hesitation, because the Lord will strike the enemy camp. The Philistines were completely caught off guard, driven back about 70 miles westward from Geba to Gezer. But here's another example of victory that's ours when we seek God's direction and his power. So we have in 2 Samuel 5, principles for godly leadership. David shows us how to wait for God's word and his people. Recognize his presence and assurance. Seek his direction and power. But it's worth repeating, David made his fair his share of mistakes, multiplying wives and adding concubines. The only man we can follow without hesitation is Jesus Christ. We need more discernment with lesser men like David. And if we're truly discerning and honest with ourselves, we'll realize that often we imitate David's weaknesses and ignore his strengths. We sometimes looked at women to lust for them, committed adultery with them in our hearts. There are seasons when we're impatient while waiting for God's will. We've exercised authority with heavy hands. We have not recognized how the Lord's been with us. We've ceased to pray at all times and often made flesh our strength. Such failures characterize our leadership at home, work, church, various places. But as we admit these sins and repent of them, we look to the captain of our salvation for help. God's son for whom are all things and by whom are all things became a little lower than angels to be man like us. He lived a perfect life and gave up that life on the cross. He died as our substitute, crucified to pay the penalty of our sins that we should pay. He rose again from the dead and proved himself to be alive, ascended to heaven, and someday he'll return to judge all mankind. All who resist Christ before or at his return will face eternity apart from God in hell. We must do what the Philistines should have done, surrender. Abandon your idols, turn away from sin and rebellion, Stop trying to establish your own righteousness. Submit to the righteousness of God. You cannot earn entry into heaven or deserve it. You can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So we'll continue our worship by remembering this gospel truth through the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and just how it shows us a glimpse of your reign and rule. 
Lord, even through fallible characters like David. Lord, even as we see kings like David and rulers in this world falling so short of your great standard, we have hope in your son, Jesus Christ, the one greater than David, who does fulfill all prophecy, who does patiently deal with us, wayward sinners, who is our Emmanuel, who is the one that we seek for assurance, who is the one that guides us and demonstrates your power. We're thankful for him and through him that we have a relationship with you, and we look forward to that rain that is coming. Lord, we pray that at this time in our daily walk, others will see that our citizenship does belong to that kingdom, and that we submit our lives and we, we follow our great commander. We pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name.